Well, welcome this morning as we begin our sermon series in the book of 2 Corinthians. I'd love it if you would turn there with me this morning, 2 Corinthians. The title of our series in 2 Corinthians that we begin today is The Light of the Gospel. This letter to the 2 Corinthians is an incredibly gospel-centered book. In fact, I want to begin our time this morning by reading a number of the gospel highlights in the book. And there really are, here in 2 Corinthians, a number of, of highlights for us. In fact, one of the things that I think would be very beneficial for the church is if, as we walk through the, this letter over the course of the next many months, um, as well as even this morning, as we highlight a few of the specific passages, that you would, uh, I know one of the ways that I do it is I'll highlight in my Bible passages that are particularly gospel-centered, preaching the gospel to me. I can find them quickly when I am needed to be reminded of the truth of the gospel. And I'll put a cross in the margin or, or three dots for the three nails or, or something like that so I can find them quickly. I would encourage you to make note of that in, in the Bible. And some of you are like, well, I'm actually using one of the, the, the what are they, pew Bibles? They're not pew Bibles. They're like cafeteria bench Bibles. Um, it, that's great. Mark it up. That way someone else who uses it someday can find the gospel quickly in Second Corinthians with us. Uh, in any event, these verses are many familiar statements perhaps to you, uh, statements of the gospel in the scriptures. And yet there are so, um, while there are so many beautiful scriptures about the gospel of Jesus Christ in this letter that we can pay attention to, uh, there has not been a great deal of attention given to this letter as a whole. Uh, I think that it is perhaps the most quoted and least read letter of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And so let's pay attention not only to these scriptures that we can pull out and glean from, but also as we spend many months together looking closely at what we find in 2 Corinthians. Here are a few highlights for us as we begin. My favorite, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. We'll have these on the screen behind me. I'll also post these on the website when the when the podcast goes up, so you can catch those then as well, if that would be helpful in that way. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's calling to our attention the Creator God, that God, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Beautiful gospel statement. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 14 and 15. We have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Just a couple verses later, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Again, just a few verses later in verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What an incredibly succinct, Beautiful, compelling statement of the gospel. What a beautiful fruit of the work 
of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That is one of the most encouraging gospel statements in the scriptures. These scriptures are interwoven throughout an intensely personal letter. They are a true thread of encouragement for the people of God who are struggling against conformity in their culture. And so it's clear to me, as I've been studying this book, that this this beautiful letter is of great benefit and encouragement for us today. That we too are struggling against conformity in this world. And we need to hear that, that he who was rich became poor so that we might receive the lavish riches of his grace and kindness toward us, as Ephesians puts it. What an encouragement for the people of God that we might be coming grounded and encouraged in the gospel alone so that we might be a people, a Christ people, rather than a people who are absorbed by and absorbing the values of the culture that is around us. Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, we thank you for 2 Corinthians. It is a a court teaching, a core doctrine, a core understanding of this church that your your scriptures are sufficient in their whole and in their particulars for whatever it is that you would have for the church, we can find it in your word. And it will be worked in us by means of your word, applied to us by your spirit, according to your grace and will of Father. So Lord, we pray that this particular little letter, so personal and yet so pithy, that it would speak to our hearts and call us out of the darkness in which we live, and that even in the midst of that darkness, you would shine a great light. You would be glorified, and it would be for the good of your church as you so kindly work in our midst. Lord, we pray this in the name of that great light, that great face. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, this morning, I'll be honest, this is a bit of a complicated message for me. I, I like to, to open up a text, read it, and then say, now look at the word that you find there, you know? And then look at the way that that preposition like, connects like this, oh, the gospel, right? Well, this is an introductory message, and we have to look at like a whole book of the scriptures this morning and look at some background and, and some themes. And so... What I'm going to ask you to do, especially the kids who are with us this morning, we're going to have to labor together. If you think it's work for you, it's work for me, all right? Let's work together to understand some background information about 2 Corinthians that I pray sets us up well to understand 2 Corinthians during the course of our study in the coming months. Now, there are three things I want to call our attention to about the background of the city of Corinth. The first is about the city. The city of Corinth was founded uh, somewhere in the 7th century B.C., okay? It's founded around the time of the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah. So if you want to know what's going on in Israel at the time of the founding of Corinth, you could go back there. 
Now, about five centuries later, in the second century BC, it was destroyed by Rome and the great wars and the conquests that Rome is, is wiping out this Greek empire and establishing their own in the second century BC. About a hundred years later, the Romans come in and they say, this is a pretty nice geographic location, this city that we destroyed. And so why don't we build a Roman city there? They do that all over the Roman Empire. They go and they find these ruins where they conquered and then they establish themselves there. And so they establish a Roman city here in what was this Greek location. And so in the first century BC, they rebuild Corinth as a Roman colony. Now, that colony flourishes. It is an incredible geographic location. You'll see it in just a minute. It flourishes there, and it becomes what probably was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Friends, that's a big deal. All right, It's a population of well over 100,000. If you include the surrounding communities and villages around it, it just swells probably something like twice as many Slaves, again, just compounding the, the, the breadth and the population of this city and its influence in the region. Now, I'm going to put up a couple maps. I do not know if this is going to work well on this screen or not, but we'll give it a try. This is actually two maps, okay? Don't get too confused. Um, the top map is sort of a zoom out. You can kind of see Italy up there. You got the boot, right? Some of the kids just learned something. Wow, Italy looks like a boot. Didn't know that. Um, some of the adults just learned something. And um, so you've got the Italy in the boot. You've got the Fertile Crescent over here where Israel is. And then you have right in the middle of these two major regions in the scriptures, we have Corinth sitting there in that red dot. Now, if you zoom in on that, it looks like this guy. And Corinth is just on the edge of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And uh, it's, it's known as the master of two harbors. That little, little isthmus, I guess it's called. There, just really impressing myself with my words this morning. All right, isthmus um, is, it's only about five miles wide there at its narrowest point. And so Corinth actually had harbors on both sides, which is a really big deal because when you, you have a harbor, it's a place where there's a transfer of freight and goods. And when there's a transfer, you know there's always a bit of a tax, a little bit of a fee, right? It's a way to make money. Well, they got two harbors. And so while the goods are coming in in one harbor, they're transporting it about five miles, big deal, no problem, and then putting it in another harbor for another fee on the same goods. It's like double taxation, right? I mean, they are wealthy with this geographic location, and they grow up in this area to become quite an influence in the Roman Empire, sort of having these goods moving through that region. It's the city of Corinth. This is where we find it in the letter of 2 Corinthians. Then we have the culture of the city. The city of Corinth at the time of the writing of 2 Corinthians should be seen as a distinct city from the historical city of Corinth that was destroyed in the second century, or second or third, second century by Rome. This new city that's being built up is a bit distinct. For instance, the temple of the old Corinth was infamous for its perversion. Okay, Not necessarily fully the case in this new city of Corinth. Now, the whole of the Roman Empire was relatively perverse, but... So a new Roman way of going about these things. 
But it's not the same city, that old city, at the time of the writings of 2 Corinthians. The city of Corinth, by the time 2 Corinthians comes and the explosion of Christianity in that region of the world, it's been recently built and it's beginning to flourish and it viewed itself as quite sophisticated, perhaps cosmopolitan, people from all over the region and the world gathering in this wealthy, growing city. The people saw themselves as connected by and large to Rome. They were, though they're sitting here in Greece, they consider themselves a Roman city and yet they held to many Greek cultural values. That becomes extremely important if we're going to understand 2 Corinthians, these Greek cultural values. The Corinth that Paul knew was essentially a Roman trading city, increasing in wealth and status, but growing up with Greek and cultural values and religion. Now, these cultural values, as I said, are extremely important. It's an honor and shame culture. Here's where I'm going with this, why it's important for 2 Corinthians. A culture where status, wealth, rhetorical skills, and education were the means of advancement in society. So if you did not have these things, it's not just that you didn't have access. It's that you were dishonorable, right? And if you came from not having those things, you bear in your person a dishonor. This isn't like a self-made man society. This is a place where if you are dishonorable, That's what you are. Now, when we read 2 Corinthians, we see a very different set of values being held out by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Specifically, we see Paul himself embodying and championing a a different set of values. Now, this has caused the Corinthian church to face a very serious end pass. The question for Corinth has been the whole time. You even saw some of these things happen in 1 Corinthians. Would they cling to the values that is the way of Christ and his kingdom? And would they cling to his messenger from which they'd heard the gospel, Paul? Or would they simply absorb and be absorbed into the surrounding culture? What a relevant question for us. You can see how we have much to learn from this letter today. A final little uh, bit of background information is the letters. There are two letters that we have in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We have them preserved for us today. But in these letters are references to other letters from Paul that have not been preserved for us and are not a part of the canon of scripture. Efforts to reconstruct the timeline, it can be quite difficult, but something like the following happened. And I think it's going to help us to understand why we wind up with 2 Corinthians and give us insight into what we find there. So Paul, he makes his first visit to Corinth. He is a a believer. I'm not going to give us a great deal of information, just don't have time about Paul. But Paul is a believer in Jesus Christ, though he comes from a background of persecuting the church. And having persecuted the church, Jesus calls him to be his messenger. He is converted to Christ and goes on on these missionary journeys sent by God and the church. One of the places he goes to is Corinth. He goes to Corinth in about A.D. 50. At that time, as when he gets to Corinth and begins the ministry there, the Jews make a coordinated attack against Paul and the Christians there. But in spite of the persecution, many believed. In fact, at least one of the Jewish synagogue leaders believes in Jesus Christ among many of the Gentiles who were beginning to believe. And so a church is growing up. 
1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 makes reference to a letter that Paul wrote following that visit, following the establishment of the church and the persecution causing him to leave. He writes a letter back to them. Now, the letter that we call 1 Corinthians was written in about AD 53. We don't have that the actual 1 Corinthians. We don't have that letter, but in 1 Corinthians, it makes a reference to a letter that went before. Three years after the establishment of the church there, Paul receives a report from Chloe's household about quarrelings and factions. I'm following the timeline as a church, as a church planter. I'm thinking, yeah, that's about right. Three years in, it's going to happen. This makes sense. Corinth isn't some weird place. They're just a church. There's going to be quarreling. There's going to be factions that grow up. And there's going to be a letter that needs to be sent by the church's planter to remind them of the truth of the gospel. He confronts the quarreling. It, it addresses a number of questions and sin and errors among the members of the church. And he does so by means of the gospel. Now, in about AD 54, about a year later, at two different times, two people go to visit Corinth. Timothy and the Apostle Paul himself at two different times, arrive in Corinth. And around that time, shortly after that visit, there appears to be a third letter that the Apostle Paul writes. So he's planted the church, he's left, he wrote them a couple letters, then he goes there, then he leaves again and he writes a third letter. We don't have that letter. We don't have access to it. That letter seems to have caused a great deal of concern for Corinth. It may have strained the relationship with Paul. It appears that the members of the church, though, responded in repentance and faith. It, it, it's referenced as, as the severe letter. All right? It was a severe letter that strained their relationship, but it appears that Corinth responded with repentance. Now, crucial to our timeline leading up to the writing of 2 Corinthians, in late AD 54, so about four years into this church plant, a little bit later, a riot erupts in Ephesus. And the Apostle Paul is in the city of Ephesus, and he's doing ministry there, and a riot erupts, and Paul winds up having to leave Ephesus. Now, his plan after leaving Ephesus originally was that he would go and visit Corinth. And he told him, make preparations, I'm going to come, I'm going to visit you, I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to preach the gospel, we're going to do some other things there. But instead, when he leaves Ephesus, he has to flee to the north, which is away from Corinth. And so, this young church plant, having received a severe letter and, and trying to walk in repentance and understanding of the gospel and having some other people who are saying some, some sort of confusing things to them, they're now confused because their church planter, their leader, isn't coming to them after all. This is part of Paul's motivation for 2 Corinthians. He writes what is likely the, actually the fourth letter to Corinth to tell them, of the gospel, to affirm his love for them, to affirm in them the love of the Lord for them and their understanding of the gospel. And so out of that context arises three themes in 2 Corinthians. Each of these themes are challenging the culture in Corinth, cultures of, of educational elitism and wealth and power. And I hear that and I say, God, write a church, write a letter to us. What would you say? And it seems to me that he would say 2 Corinthians. In fact, it seems to me that he is saying 2 Corinthians to us today. The first theme that we see in 2 Corinthians is encouragement 
and apostleship. Joel Fair is going to have the opportunity to open the word for us next week to look more deeply at the encouragement that is brought. But there are at least two challenges to the ministry and influence of Paul in Corinth. The first challenge is that there were some in Corinth among the church who had sort of made their way in in Paul's absence that were challenging Paul's authority. I mean, they're saying, isn't he kind of a lowly laborer? Isn't he like a tent maker? He's basically a slave class. He's not the best communicator either. His words are confusing. You see, they're dishonoring him in his absence. And so Paul has to encourage them as well as encourage them to remember his apostleship, his sentness from the Lord. There's a second challenge to Paul's ministry and authority in the church that the question in the Corinthian people, does Paul still care about us? It's been a while since he's been here. Now these people, they're saying some weird things, but at least they're here and they're honorable people in the community. And they share cultural values like us, not like Paul, that, that Jewish guy that keeps coming over and saying things. I haven't even seen him in a while. In his teaching, the question is, is it still relevant to a Corinthian people? Perhaps the church should just begin to listen to a couple powerful, persuasive communicators who had infiltrated the church. Now, there are three scriptures I'm going to draw our attention to to get at this theme so we can carry it with us as we walk more systematically in the coming weeks. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You can hear Paul pleading with the church not to be ashamed of affliction, but rather to receive the encouragement of the Lord. Yes, Paul's had to leave Ephesians. Yes, they've heard about that. Yes, they themselves are receiving affliction themselves. But the Lord is a God of comfort and encouragement. You should be willing to share and receive the comfort of others who have suffered, not to abandon them. That theme continues in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Paul's saying, do I, do I have to write? Do I have to get letters of recommendation to send to you to say that I'm the real deal? That I really am speaking with integrity and honor and authority to you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all and to show you that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul's encouraging the people to remember his ministry among them. More importantly, to remember the transformative effect of the gospel being applied to their lives by the Holy Spirit. Do you remember how when the word was preached, the Holy Spirit moved and you were changed? Do you remember that? Is there a greater recommendation letter than that? Is there any greater honor than for the Spirit of God to work among the people of God? It continues in... 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. You remember, the last time he wrote to them, his last big communication was a severe letter. It was calling them to some forms of repentance. And they're in this honor and shame culture. They're, they're feeling the weight of that repentance. Yes, Paul rebuked sin and error in the church. And that has caused a strain. 
But at the same time, remember how that rebuke led to repentance? And repentance isn't evidence of failure. Repentance is evidence of life and salvation and grace. Friends, there, that is something we need to hear. Now, we need to not be afraid to repent. Yes, it's, it's evidence of our failure, but that shouldn't be a surprise to us. Any evidence otherwise is just pretending and performing. But rather, repentance is evidence of life, of conviction, of the Spirit's work, of grace and salvation. Be encouraged, Paul says, for my love for you, yes, but also for the Lord's love for you. A major theme is encouragement and the apostleship of Paul, the truth of his teaching of the gospel. The second major teaching theme is suffering and generosity. These are very related to one another. Unfortunately, some of the passages that I'm going to read, you're going to be familiar with, but you're going to be familiar with them out of context. The context of some of these verses on generosity is actually suffering. Again, there's a cultural conflict here. Everything in their upbringing, everything in their neighborhood, everything from their parents and their friends says suffering that seems to accompany the gospel is evidence that it is false and not valuable. See, it doesn't work, suffering argues. But Paul argues that the Corinthians should follow the example of others and especially Jesus by learning all the more in leaning all the more into generosity in the midst of their suffering. Yes, your suffering be generous. Yes, your suffering, the Lord is with you. Suffering may sap your strength, but if God leaves some strength remaining, the call is not to retreat, but to lean all the more into a ministry of generosity and compassion, to identify with others in the church who are suffering. Friends, I think that is one of the most immediately applicable things for us, even this morning. Some of you haven't just suffered. Some of you haven't just experienced hardship or affliction. You've specifically experienced hardship, suffering, and affliction in the midst of labor for the sake of Christ. And you're wondering... How long do we do this? This doesn't seem to be working. And the answer is go. If the Lord has left you strength, that strength is to show his grace and kindness toward us in Christ to others. That we would be used up for the sake of Christ. Life is given to show the all-surpassing beauty of Jesus. His love and his Sacrifice. There, is, there are few things more compelling than a people who have lost much, leaning into generosity, showing that we haven't lost anything. We have Jesus. And so we have much to give, do you see? 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We'll spend considerable time on that verse when we come to it, but you can see that it's a call to lean further into generosity for the sake of the life and joy we find in God. So really, even more than being a call to generosity, that is actually a call to gratitude. 
that we would have hearts filled with gratitude that overflow into generosity. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. How is generosity possible for a people in the midst of suffering? Especially when such generosity, we risk losing our status and our standing in our culture. Well, the answer is, those things are temporary. Status, standing, they will all be one day destroyed. But what God is building into which we are being called to invest is eternal and sure and will never be destroyed. You see, the call is to call to to see with gratitude what God has given and see that we have much to give. Third theme in 2 Corinthians, it's very similar. You can see these are flowing one to another. Weakness and power. Weakness and power. It's really a root theme in the book because the root theme of the book is the gospel. And the gospel is a proclamation of power and weakness. It is the way of the cross of Jesus Christ. And of all people who have been rescued by that cross, we have been called to take up that cross and follow after Jesus. And there are few things in the world that are more countercultural than power in weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure, speaking of the gospel message, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The power is the treasure, the message, not the messenger. Paul isn't afraid or ashamed that he is a simple messenger. He isn't concerned that there are more eloquent, more impressive communicators than him, people who can say things more clearly than he does. When the gospel works in the midst of the church, even though the proclaimer is nothing special, when there is fruitfulness, when there's transformation, it's evidence of the power of God. And isn't that what we're here for? Isn't that what we want to see? God, show your power. Give us a weak communicator. Give us a clear gospel and communicate to our hearts the light of that gospel. And then we'll know the Lord has done this and it will be marvelous in our eyes. So it's obvious what he says in 2 Corinthians 11.30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Because in boasting in the things that show his weakness, he's boasting in the power of God to work by means of his grace, the gospel message. Look how the transformative power of the word of God is a miracle, he's saying. It isn't the result of eloquence or persuasion. It isn't the result of cultural values. It's the, the result of an invasion of God in, who is the creator into the human heart to work a new creation. That's the miracle. So again, it's no surprise that we find 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. It's the grace of our God. The Corinthian church, don't be afraid of weakness. You don't have to posture in the culture. You don't have to strive for what the culture values. You're already, you already have by a gift of grace what is the means of your perfection. Cling to it. Let everything else go, but don't give up 
the great gift. Don't lose sight of the great joy of grace. These are the three themes, encouragement, generosity, countercultural gospel power. These will fill our time in 2 Corinthians. But before we close, I want to leave us with a greeting. So I'd love it if you have your Bibles open still. Please turn with me to the beginning of the letter. A simple greeting. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, not because he's cool, not because he got singled out as a great Christian leader. He was a persecutor of the church, by the way, right? And Timothy, our brother, these are who are writing, to the church of God that is in Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. So as much as it's helpful to get the background on Corinth, as much as it's helpful to see the ways that the themes are weaving into the need of the gospel in Corinth, it's written beyond Corinth. It's written to a people in all of Achaia, and it turns out by the Holy Spirit's inspiration and preservation, it's written for us too. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where I want to leave us. Grace and peace. It's common in Greek letters to begin with some form of greetings. Often, nearly always, Greek letters began with the Greek word karain. It means simply greetings. Well, we understand that, right? We do the same thing today. We say, welcome, dear so-and-so, farewell, goodbye, blessings, peace out. Listen to the words. They sound like, like see ya, right? But when you say see ya, you don't mean see ya. I mean, Maybe. I say see you to the people at the cash register that I'll probably never see again, right? See you now. <laughs> Maybe not, because I don't mean it. I just mean greetings, farewell. But what does the word farewell mean? It means as, as you are faring, as you're going, may it be well with you. It's a blessing. It's a benediction. Goodbye. In your going, may it be good with you. Blessings. The Lord bless you. And keep you. Peace out. Shalom as you go. Right? Well, that's not what we mean. And that's not what the Greeks meant. They didn't mean greetings in the name of our gods. May it be well with your soul. They just means, hey, what's up? But the believers, when they used this greeting, the, the Christians, they took the greeting, Karain, and made it a proclamation, a praise, and a genuine benediction, a genuine well-saying. The believers morphed the word that is a simple greetings, karain, and they turned it into the word charis, which means grace. And the word grace is not, hey, dear, so-and-so, what's up? The word grace is profound. It is a, the, the wellest saying we could give, the grace of God to you. Paul, in his letters, he adds the Hebrew blessing and peace, shalom, the, the, the grace of God that's purchased the peace of God be for you. This is the blessing of the letter. What he's saying right at the front, what I have for you is not conventional wisdom. You're not going to be, hear me reasoning from the Greek writings. 
about the way that you can make it in this Greek Roman city. This is a letter that's going to be about grace, an invading grace, a countercultural grace. It should sound foreign to your ears because your ears have been enculturated. That's you and me, friends. It should sound like a gift coming from above to our ears and our hearts. The prayer is that this letter would produce peace in a people strained between the culture and the way of the kingdom, the culture and the way of this world. This letter, not only written by Paul, but by the inspiration and preservation of the Holy Spirit, My prayer is that it would grant to the church, not only in Corinth, but in Brevard County, even this morning, a peace that does not come from affluence or influence. Friends, we have so much of the same culture that it could all go away. The lights could not come back on. And we still have the gift of grace in the good news of Jesus Christ himself. Heavenly Father, these things are true. Affluence, influence, they're already passing away and we find them difficult to grasp at when we do. As has been evidenced by so many stories among those who have affluence and influence, it's often tragic. They lie, they are idols. We know it too. And so we thank you for the invasion of your grace, a a different message, not one that can be syncretized, not one that can be sort of brought up next to and make sense in the world in which we live, but it truly flips the world upside down. And it, it calls for a radical change of our faith, where our hope is placed. So Lord, I pray that in the people who are gathered here this morning and those who gather with us in the coming months, that you would challenge, but you wouldn't just challenge our minds, you would invade our hearts with the light of the gospel. Thank you, God. We, we trust you. We trust you for your work in our midst. And when it happens, and as it happens, and even as we remember the ways that it has already happened, I pray that it would explode into praise, that we would become a worshiping people, as a rejoi- as a result, that we would truly rejoice in our God. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your great and glorious name. Amen.